You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. two years old when we first went to the Philippines and dad and mom were tasked with starting the first church in Manila. There were no apostolics anywhere in, in that great city uh, when they went in 1969 and um, they, they went winning the you know, usual suspects. We need the doctors, the lawyers, the business people. You know, we, need, we need people of influence and none of them wanted it. <laughs> None of them wanted the apostolic message. They didn't, they didn't like the way we worship, and they're very traditional in their religion. And for two years, they didn't have any converts. And if you know anything about Filipinos, that's pretty unusual. I mean, now it is. I can't even believe it. But at the time, they, um, they didn't want it. And so mom and dad were actually discouraged because they were called to be missionaries in India. They weren't even called to the Philippines. But when they finally raised their budget and told everybody, we're going to India, you know, India said, no, you're not. We're not going to let you in. They closed the borders. And so they had all their budget raised, and they're ready to go. And at last minute, Brother Adams, he said, well, why don't you come to the Philippines? And so they ended up there. You got to imagine when you have no converts and you didn't even think you're supposed to be there in the first place, you might get thinking, maybe God ain't in this. But before they gave up, Dad said, we're going to go to Smoky Mountain. He said, surely we can find somebody that will go to church from there. And at the time, it was the fourth largest slum in the world. They ended up closing it down because it was a, a national embarrassment. They had tours going in there. You could actually hire tour guys to take you into this slum. And it was so dramatic and drastic, the the poverty that was there, that people from all over the world wanted to see it. We were actually repulsed by the fact that people wanted to pay a tour guide to go there. If you don't want to help them, don't go, just look at them. And Dad said, I'm going to Smoky Mountain, and I was was little. I remember... um, my earliest memories were the, the, the trash. I don't like trash. I don't like decay. I don't like that smell any more than anybody else. In fact, Dad said the first year that I was there, I was born in Vancouver. I mean, beautiful, clear water, uh, you know, clean water, clear air. He said the first year I was there, my favorite sentence was, I smell something. But they opened up the Sheaves for Christ missionary van doors, and they told the children, if you come to church, we're going to feed you. And, of course, they just filled it up. Um, and, and I'll never forget that. I went to Sunday school with children from Smoky Mountain, and I saw as God began to change their life because the principles of the kingdom work. And... The children actually evangelized their parents because they would go back to their parents and, and, and family members and they would just be gushing about what they had learned and eventually these desperate people who every moment was a fight for survival decided to spend a little bit of time going to church. And they went to church and that's where the revival began 
was from the people from Smoky Mountain. They didn't have any converts for the first two years, but then those people began to win souls, and they began to absorb the principles of the kingdom. I will say this. One day, the, the Filipino pastor that was joined with my, my dad as they started that church, Brother Ompad, he asked my dad after a period of time, he said, why aren't you teaching these people about giving, about tithing, about offerings? And, and, and you know, dad was proving his, uh, his youth and I guess his ignorance a little bit because his response to Brother Ompad was, they're too poor to give. He said, we, we don't need their money and they don't have money. And Brother Ompad looked at him and said, well, then, Brother Mallory, how are they going to be blessed? And it hit Dad. Wait a minute. Maybe what the Bible says is for their good. It's not for my good. It's for their good. And so they began to teach tithing and offerings to those poor people. Of course, they didn't have any money, and so... After a while, the ladies came to my mother and they said, Sister Mallory, we've been hearing all of this. We want to do everything because the Bible, the, the, following the word of God has changed our lives. And, and we want to do this. We want to be blessed, but we don't have money. How do we pay our tithes and how do we give? And mom went to prayer over it and she came back a little while later. And, and, and Filipinos, every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they cook rice. To them, rice is food. They, they call it rice is life. And she said, whenever you cook rice, put your hand in the rice sack first and get out a handful of rice and set it aside. And every meal, you just take one handful out and you set it aside and you bring that to, to church and that will be your tithes and offerings. And to this day, 53 years later, if you go to a church, an apostolic church in the Philippines, the altar will be filled with little personalized sacks of rice because they all, I don't care if they're rich or poor, they all do that. And that now has begun to build churches, hundreds and hundreds of churches throughout the country. But you see, those people, they started coming to church and they were so excited because they'd show you a pair of shoes and they would say, I didn't get these shoes out of the trash. For the first time in my life, I went to a store and I bought brand new shoes. And you talk about dance. They could dance in those new shoes. And then because they said, because God gave me a job. I have money. And then they would come to church. And this is why my shirt here is called a barong. This is what they wear, uh, their ceremony or their dress shirt. And, and they would have a, a barong on. They would say, look, I got a barong. I've seen them there. I've seen them from the youngest age that when the, when the garbage truck would lift up and the trash would come piling out, the people are there and the, gra the garbage falls on top of them because they're competing for the best trash. And they, if there's a shirt, they put it on and they keep digging. I've seen that with my own eyes and they would say look I got this shirt at the store because God gave me a job and then they moved out of Smoky Mountain and then they got an apartment hallelujah and then their children went to school and then to college and now three generations later you will find the descendants of Smoky Mountain and they are the doctors they're the lawyers they're the business people and they are evangelizing our world I've always felt called to the Philippines. And my path has not been 
one of those easy paths where here it's just easy, just the doors open, walk through. I've always had obstacles. I don't know if it's because, like my dad said, well, Jeff, you need character, and this builds character. After a while, I said, I'm sick of character. I think I've had enough. But it's just been that way for us. And I've always wanted to go, and, 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 and doors shut, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to hurry through this. But we were, uh, we've been in the Philippines for years, and we've, we've had a missionary appointment now for 25 years, but it's always been on and off, on and off, and um, we started two churches in Hawaii. I guess that's not too bad, going to Maui and starting a church, but there's devils there too. And while we were in Maui, my wife woke up one morning and looked at me and she pointed at my neck and she said, Jeff, what is that? And I felt of it, and it was a growth. It had appeared overnight. And we went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, the one good thing is, he said, I, I'm sure it's not cancer because everybody knows cancer doesn't grow overnight. But he was wrong. It was a rare form of lymphoma. And you see, earlier that year, I had been at a minister's conference in, in Alexandria, Louisiana, and I had been pouring my life out to God, saying, God, when, when is my call that I know you have given me? When am I going to be able to live my call? And a man of God had come to me and brought me and my father together. They didn't know any of this. And he began to prophesy, and he said, the mantle of anointing is upon you. The mantle of your father is upon you. My dad was a great missionary in the Philippines. The mantle of your father is upon you. The mantle of a million soul revival is upon you. You're going to go to the Philippines. The door is open. The red light has turned to a green light. And you're going to put seven teams together right here in this conference. And you're going to go to seven regions of that country. And revival is going to break out. And it happened exactly as he said. And so I was so excited. went to Brenda. We got the mantle. It's time. We're going. But here we are with this. They said it's a rare form of lymphoma. And they called it mantle cell lymphoma. And I thought the name of that was cruel. Because you see, the Lord had given me a promise of a mantle. But you see, the enemy had his input. And he said, no, I'm going to give you a mantle too. And it's a mantle of death. And if you want to show, well, there it is. We left our church in Maui, Hawaii. And we ended up in Washington, D.C. at the National Institutes of Health. Where the National Cancer Institute is located. Because they were studying this very form of lymphoma, mantle cell. And the number one doctor, lymphoma doctor on planet Earth is Dr. Wyndham Wilson. There's 68 known lymphomas that they have identified. The 63 of those 68, this one doctor has discovered and named and come up with the protocol treatment for 63 of those lymphomas. He is Mr. Lymphoma. And when we came to his team, he said, we want to recruit you to be in our study, our clinical study. We are going to spare no expense. We're going to give you everything new that we can give you. 
He said, but at the end of this regimen, we think that you will benefit science more than we will benefit you because we have never been able to cure this disease. You see, at this time, the disease was stage four. It was all throughout my body. That one tumor was just the tip of the iceberg. My, my liver had cancer. My spleen had cancer. My intestines were full of cancer. My bone marrow was 70% cancer. And they were saying, there is no hope. And here I am, if you want to put that picture back up there. I, I, at, at one point, I was in that hospital nine months. Got to go home three nights in nine months. And it ended up being over two years. They tried everything. It was three surgeries, two years of chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant. It was absolutely everything that science could do. And while I was in that hospital, I was having some talks with God. You see, I'm not the same person as I was when I went into that hospital. Because that valley changed me. It didn't destroy me. It made me stronger. But I had to go through some dark times to get there. And I would ask God, God, which mantle? Because apparently I have two. Which mantle is the mantle that is really going to be my destiny? Is it going to be the mantle of sickness which says that all of your dreams were for nothing? That your anointing isn't going to amount to anything. That your life is over and it's going to end right here in this hospital and you're going to go out quietly. Or is it the the mantle of anointing? Is it the mantle that says that I have a future? Is it the mantle that says we're going to break through all of this obstacles that's in our our way and we are going to live our dreams? Is it that one or is it the other one? And it would go back and forth. While we were in the hospital, and I, in fact, one of the times I will never forget, I was, much, I was in an uh, ICU, much like that, when I got a communication from the Philippines. And we'd been going for years, but this one place continued to communicate with us, and it was a remote place. So I was pretty impressed, the fact that they went to all the trouble to, to reach me. But they said, you have to come. It was a little village called Damolo. On the island of Mindanao, they said, you have to come. And I, man, I would cry when I would hear that because I wanted nothing more than just to go. I wanted to get out of this hospital, but I couldn't. And they said, you've got to come. And I told them, I said, if I can, I will. I found out later it was the most dangerous place in the country. They don't have industry there. Their industry is kidnapping for ransom. That's it. If you're a foreigner and you wander in there, you will be kidnapped. And if you're a North American or, or, or whatnot, you, you, will, you will have to pay $6 million or they will cut your head off on YouTube and post the video. And so maybe that's why I'd never been there before. But I prayed about it. Brenda prayed about it. We had a lot of time to pray. And I felt peace about it. I wanted to go. And I told him, I said, I'll go. But you know, we had this disease. We had this fight. And so one day I told Brenda, and I'm skipping over a lot of things. But one day I told Brenda, I said, you and I, we got to meet. Because I knew I couldn't do anything about my body. But I could do something about my faith. Amen. 
Jesus said, fight the good fight. Or the Bible says, fight the good fight of faith. And I didn't know, I didn't have anybody to tell me what to do in such an extreme situation. In fact, I had friends who had been pastors for years, went silent on me, and they told me later, we didn't know what to tell you. We've never been in a situation like that. And I didn't know what to do myself. But I began to realize something, that I was much too quiet in my condition, that I had learned to, to just go through it. I'm tough. I can endure stuff. And I got the mindset that maybe I'm just supposed to be the soldier that endures hardship. And my testimony is that I'm not going to break, you know, all the way to the end. He didn't break. He didn't bend. But what if God doesn't want that for you? What if God wants you to break out of that? And I began to realize that I had to say something. But I didn't know what to say. You know, Jesus told the disciples when they failed entering into the supernatural, they said, why can't we do what you do, basically? He said, well, because of your unbelief. For if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mountain, right? You would speak to this mountain. And I began to realize what that mountain was. That mountain was not a physical mountain. That mountain was a mountain of doubt. He said, you want to get there? You can't get there because of your doubt or your unbelief. So speak to that mountain. And you see what happens in our life. The more we live, the more we learn. And a lot of times, the more we learn, the more doubt we get along with it. Because we end up, you know, settling on what is or is not possible. That's why Jesus told his followers many times, unless you be converted or change and become as a little child, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven because the one thing a child does not have is doubt. And I didn't know what to say. I was trying to have faith without having what faith is made of. I didn't know faith was made of something. I just thought you had faith. I said, Brenda, you and I, we got to meet. She's like, why don't we just meet? We're always together. And thank God for a great wife that never left my side, that slept for years in a chair on a, in a hospital room. Amen. Husbands, be good to your wives. You never know. You might need them someday. And here's what I said. I was weak. I had 62 staples. My colon ruptured during the third, third cycle of chemotherapy. They had to give me an ostomy bag and cut out 30 inches of my colon. I'd lost 70 pounds. I didn't have an immune system to speak of anymore. My platelets were low. My blood levels were low. I'm just a shell of who I was. But I still have a voice. And I stood there in front of her that day, and I didn't know, even to the moment when I stood in front of her, I didn't know what I was going to say. But here's what came out. I said, what if the doctors are wrong? Yeah, I know, we're talking about Dr. Wyndham Wilson. We're at the National Institutes of Health. We're at the National Cancer Institute, where all the experts come. Unlimited budget for research. That hospital has 50,000 employees and only 200 beds. The greatest scientists in the world are there, they say. And I'm standing there saying this. What if the doctors are wrong? You know, I'm a nerd. I'm a scientist. I love science. And I get to the point where I get so immersed in all of that because I like it. 
that I, be, that I forget the fact that if you want a miracle, it's outside of science. You see, it's called supernatural. It's not this cool natural. It's supernatural. It's beyond natural. In, in other words, it's not natural. And I said, what if the doctors are wrong? What if I get to get out of this hospital? What if we get to live our lives? What if the best is yet to come? What if I do have a new anointing? What if we're going to live our dreams? What if we're going to see a million soul revival in the Philippines? I just started saying a bunch of things like that, and I didn't realize, but what I was doing, I was reinfusing my spirit with hope. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things you haven't even seen yet. And what I was doing there was I was invigorating me and my wife. We both were doing it together. We were giving each other hope. You can have faith without hope. Faith, God, you can do anything. I believe that. The Bible's true. I believe that. But in your situation, you just keep going the way you've been going. Your new normal is just your new normal. I said, what if it's not? And then I told Brenda, if I don't have to die in this hospital, I promise you, I will never let fear stop me from walking through a door God opens. Because I realized that where I was, I hadn't walked through the doors that God opened in my life. I lived with fear, low self-image, low self-esteem. Somebody else could do it better than me. It ain't about me. God, you let me live. I'm going to do things different. I promise. Well, it didn't get better right away. It got worse. And it was a few months later after that. They gave up. The experts brought us in. And they all lined up. And they said, it's over. They said, we've tried everything. And we regret to inform you that everything has failed. They said, it's time to go home. You're no benefit to, to our study anymore. It's, it's literally over. There's a tumor on your liver at the bile duct. If it grows anymore, you've got three to five days. That's it. What if they're wrong? Amen. Don't get so quiet. I'm, I'm here. Amen. Spoiler alert. Did he die? <laughs> what if they're wrong? You ever think about that? How about in your situation? What if the experts are wrong? What if everything that's been happening to you ain't the way it's going to be in the future? What if the best is yet to come? What if that pain that you came in with that you've had for years, what if God's about to heal you of it and you're going to walk out of here with no pain? What if that happens? Come on, somebody's got to have some hope. You've got to be able to look and wake up in the morning and say, maybe today is going to be better than yesterday. This world is full of fear. Our world is baptized in a spirit of fear. We are now in the age of fear, and the church has got to be opposite of that. Too many of us walk around and go, what if I lose my job? What you should be saying is, what if I don't? <laughs> what if I get a raise? What if God is for me? What if I'm highly favored? But they gave up. They said, go home. I told Brenda, I said, we're not going home. 
We're going to church. I know, in church we say things like that, but when you're in the middle of the fight, I tell you what happens when you say that, your flesh comes at you and says, you've been to church, and you still have cancer. I'm just being honest. I mean, come on. I'm logical. My logic says, man, they've been praying for you for years. Everybody sent you anointed cloths and everything, and here the experts have given up on you, and you're going back to that? Yeah, I'm going to go back to church. And so we ended up uh, about 20 hours south there in, in Columbia, Mississippi, at Brother Carney's church, Woodlawn, and it was Saturday when we arrived. Sunday was the first day of a revival. And I, they let me on the platform. It's a big old church, kind of like Make-A-Wish. You want to sit up here? I had health envy because I watched everybody out there that was healthy and wasn't running the aisles. I wished I could, but see, I was weak. But the Lord rebuked me and said, it ain't about them. Your worship don't have anything to do with them. You do what you can do. And I realized I had been just standing there judging everybody. And I got convicted. And I said, well, I can do this. And I lifted my hands. And let me tell you what happens. When you make the choice to rejoice, you get strength. You don't worship because you feel like it. You worship because I have decided, as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. And if you do worship, you'll feel like worshiping. And I lifted my hands and the Spirit of God came upon me and gave me strength. Pastor Carter, they had to help me up the steps. I couldn't get up those steps on my own. I was that weak. But I found the strength on my own. I don't know, I was in the zone with him. And I got down in the altar area and I began to walk around. Hallelujah. I wasn't asking him for anything. Too many times we come to God with an agenda. We come to God and say, God, get your notepad out. I'm fixing to give you a list of things that you've got to do for me. And there's no problem. You ask him. He wants to know your list. But I think what he wants more is he wants to know, do you want to seek my face? Do you want to know me? Do you want to get into my presence? Can I be your friend? Can I hug you? Can I hold you? And it was at that moment, I wasn't asking him for anything. Nobody was laying their hands on me. Somebody's about to get touched in this place. I felt the presence of God like I'd never felt in my life. Now I know why the Bible on many occasions talks about the, uh, the wings of God. Because it felt like wings around me. It had that feel, but yet I could still feel the pressure of His presence. And that's when something hit me at the top of my head. It was hot. And it was a slow, beautiful cleanse. It was like a scan that just went through my whole being. You see, I had left that doctor full of tumors, full of bad news, full of sickness, full of weakness. But here he is. And I knew what it was. I'd never felt nothing like that before, but I've been raised in church. I heard testimonies. Somebody said my arm was broke, but I felt something warm and my bones came back together. And I went over to Brenda. I said, Jesus just touched me. I told Brother Carney, I said, I'm going to have a testimony as a result of this day. 
We went back to Maui, Hawaii. Hadn't seen that oncologist for uh, ever, ever, not, not any time in the process. And he'd heard about my case because our insurance was in his system, Kaiser system. And when I came to him, I had a stack of medical records from the National Institutes of Health. And I handed it to him with all the discs of all the PET scans and everything that they'd done. And before he took it, I said, Doctor, I know what all this says. It ain't nothing but bad news. It's going to tell you that they tried everything and everything failed. But I was just at a church and Jesus touched me. And it ain't in these papers. I found out later he was an atheist. And he said, that's nice. We're going to test you ourselves. And it did. They called me back a little while later. He said, I want to show you the result of the scans. I had never seen the pictures of the tumors. I never wanted to. But now I did. I said, show them to me. He said, okay, here's the scan that they took, you know, the last one at the National Cancer Institute. And, and, and it, you can see an outline of my body and blue. There were blue splotches everywhere. He said, everything that is blue is tumor. I couldn't believe it. He said, yeah, you have a bulky disease. And then he flipped the image to the new picture, and it was exactly the same. Nothing had changed, and he told me that. Nothing has changed. His attitude was, since Jesus touched you. I didn't know what that meant, but you see, when Jesus touches you, you have peace. You don't need evidence. What you need is his presence. And I didn't know what it meant, but I had no fear. I told Brenda, I don't know what this means. So they put me next door, right in the, it's a little clinic. When you're in Maui, don't get sick because they don't have a lot. They put me in a little room next door. He said, well, I don't know what to do except, he said, they tried everything new and cutting edge. But he said, there is one drug from 1948 developed behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany. It's a derivative of mustard gas. I know what mustard gas is. Yeah, it's called bendamustine. He said, we might as well try it. I was like, yeah, that ought to do it. That ought to do it. See you, Brenda. They plugged it into the port in my chest, and that stuff started dripping, and Brenda did what she always did. She sat down in a chair beside me and began to read a magazine she could care less about. And the same sensation happened. It hit me at the top of my head. Exact same feeling as in the church that day. And it went through me. The exact same sensation. But this time, Brenda looked up at me and said, Jeff, what is happening to you right now? I said, why? She said, because you're turning bright red. I went, "Woo, hallelujah. She called the nurse. The nurse come running in. She had a panic attack. She said, oh, no. This will kill you. I said, hallelujah, no it won't. She said, this is a terrible reaction. She called the doctor, the atheist, the doctor ran in. And he said, oh no, terrible reaction, you're going to die. We got to stop this. So they did a bunch of stuff, and the whole time I'm happy, the whole time they're freaking out. He's getting mad at me. Why aren't you taking this seriously? I said, I felt this before. I told you about it. You didn't believe me. Finally, the red went away. They sent me home. Something was different in my body. And so I, I stood on the scale. I weighed myself in, at home. 
I was 21 pounds lighter than I was that morning. How many of you want that diet plan? <laughs> 21 pounds lighter. I called the clinic. I said, tell that doctor I'm 21 pounds lighter as a result of whatever happened today. They said, impossible. They, ca- they called me back. Three days later, I went into the clinic. The doctor watched as I was on the scale. The scale said I was 21 pounds lighter. He said, that scale's broke. They put me on another one and said the same thing. The doctor said, I don't know what happened to you. Something notable happened to you. He said, I can't continue without restaging you. He ordered another PET scan. This time, he called me back in, and his attitude was markedly different. This is what he said, Dr. Keyes. He said, I have been an oncologist 38 years, and I read all the journals. He said, I have never read what I'm about to show you. He said, I want to show you the image we took when you first came to us, and it had all the blue. And then he sighed, and his shoulders shrugged. You see, I don't believe he wanted to be an atheist. I believe that in the data, it didn't say that this could happen. You know, scientists throw out data that's called an aberration, an outlier. They don't, they don't include it. If they have 10 studies and one is drastically different, they throw that one away. You know that, right? They throw miracles away. And so he showed me the new image. There was no blue I said, doctor, I, I, I'm not a professional, but it looks like that's a good report. He said, yeah. He said, that is mass cell destruction on a scale that I have never heard or read about in my entire life. He said, you don't have a single tumor. Every tumor is gone. They did the bone marrow biopsy later, and he called me, Mr. Mallory, I don't know what's going on with you. But out of 2 billion cells that we sampled in a flow cytometry test, you started out with 70% bone cancer. Now you don't have a single cell of cancer anywhere in your bone. I said, doctor, would you call that a miracle? He said, I'll say it this way. Science has no explanation for it. I said, thank you. That's the definition of a miracle. They shook my hands. I'm sorry, I'm running a little over. They shook my hands. If you need to leave, you can go. They shook my hand, and this is what they said. Mr. Mallory, we can no longer hold you. You've been wanting to go to the Philippines ever since you've been here. You are free to go. The cancer is gone. And the last word the doctor said was, go change your world. That's why I don't walk with fear anymore. Because I'm on, I'm on his time. I should be dead. I should be in a grave. I've only got one life to live. I've only got one chance. And I'm not wasting any of it on fear. And so quickly, we bought a ticket. Get ready, brother. We bought a ticket and we went to the Philippines. We went to the island of Mindanao. We landed in the safe city. Oh, you blew the... Oh, man, you messed up. You shouldn't have showed him that. Man, he stole my thunder. It's okay. Leave it up there. I forgive you. Sin no more. We got to the safe city of Mindanao in in Davao. and, and, And it's set up by a military perimeter. But outside of that military perimeter is the wild, wild west. 
And we landed, and the ministers met us, and they said, we're so glad you're here. They were surprised we were there. But they said, we're going to take you in an SUV over land, and it's going to be an eight-hour drive. The first two hours, you can sit in seats. That leaves six hours of what? Yeah, you're going to lay down on the floorboard. We cover you up with rugs and, 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 and little bits of carpet so that they can't see you along the way because the kidnappers will get you. You didn't tell me that part. But you know, we also, God, God's always working. Even when you don't see it, he's working. That same day, a chopper was made available to us. I'd never flown a chopper before. I like a, I like a chopper. And not only that, they mobilized the 73rd Battalion of Army Rangers to go in ahead of us, and they said, give us two days. We'll sweep the place. We'll make sure that there's nobody dangerous there. And when we say it's time, we're going to let your chopper fly. And look at the next pictures, brother. Show them. Go ahead. That's flying over the island of Mindanao. There's no roads in that area. Keep going. Amen. The, the road would have been the river bottom. Keep going. It's, it's just rug, rough. It's rugged. And when we finally got there, the military opens the door. And they said, come on out. You're, you're safe. Hallelujah. Somebody say, I'm safe. I don't care what the report says. You're safe. You're safe in this place. You're safe in his arms. He's not going to leave you nor forsake you. And the next picture shows that we met with some of our people. The next picture, they're very tribal there. So the pastors came from our, all the surrounding areas, and we had a wonderful time. Pastor Carter, nope, back. We had a wonderful time with our people. But after a while, I said, why are we here? We're just talking. We're just fellowshipping. They said, you're here because we have a story to tell you. They said, 45 years ago, there was not a single apostolic anywhere in these mountains. There were no Pentecostals. Nobody knew about the mighty God in Christ. But a missionary and his guide came walking through these mountains. And one of the places they stopped was right here in Damoloch. And the, that night they had a service and they preached to us. And, and, and some of us were filled with this new experience called the Holy Ghost. Speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave the utterance. Hallelujah. And then they taught us about Jesus named baptism. And many of us were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they left some material, and then they were gone. And since that time, 45 years, not another missionary has been back to see what we have done with the gospel in 45 years. I said, wow, what have you done? They took me to a place where we, Brendan and I could see all the way around on that mountain is how many churches. On that mountain is how many churches. In that valley, if you follow that river, there's like 50 churches up that valley and how many churches over there. I was just blown away by what they were telling me. I said, you have been very effective. They said, we have been so successful evangelizing this mountain region that the names of these mountains have changed. They now call these mountains the Pentecostal mountains because 98% of all the people living in these mountains are full of the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name, and attending one of our churches. I said, that's incredible. I'll tell it everywhere I go. As we were leaving, I had one more question. I said, who was that missionary that day? They said, it was your father. I'll tell you what, when we were flying back that day, 
I was like, fear, I'm glad I didn't listen to you on that one. I don't know how many experiences that God had already prepared for me that I never was able to witness. Because fear stopped me or fear talked me out of it. I am so glad that I listened to faith. They say there's over a million believers there now. So many things have been happening. I, I'm, I'm, I'm over time. I have a three-minute video and then I'd be done. Can I show that? Is that okay? I'm sorry. I, I asked him and he's like, well, what am I supposed to say? Everybody's... <clears throat> Amen. So I'm going to show you something. And... We hired some fathers around Hope Village. They don't have jobs there. And they're so grateful that we, we give them jobs. We don't pay them much, but they make do. We pay them every two weeks. And we were getting ready to leave. We were just there just a few weeks ago. They said, we want to do something for you. You can, you can bring to the brethren in the churches there, and maybe it will help you come back to us. And so, we got to finish this orphanage. Amen. We need, we need about $10,000 for the fire escape stairs and fire suppression system and whatnot so we can be legal in that building. And I want to show you this real quick. Because let me just tell you, the, the, the biggest thing that can change your life is not your circumstances. It's your mentality. It's your mentality. So let's let's play this right real quick. Our staff retreated to Hope Village when the pandemic shut everything down. This was one of two typhoons that hit at about the same time. Storms in life reveal if you have that secret something that produces resilience. Totoy could be considered poor, but he is surprisingly rich. Of course, it depends on your definition of poor. He and his older brother Carlo don't have money, gadgets, or other material things. But because they don't have anything, everything could be a resource. But they used a storm. The great tree fell on our newly constructed concrete wall. We saw loss. Carlo saw an opportunity. Look beyond the toys. What they're really making is happiness. It's not dependent on anyone or anything else. Happiness is everywhere, even in a storm. Because of this, they are rich. How many times have we had much, but our satisfaction ran low? Gratitude makes every day a gift, and a single moment can be an eternity of happiness. Sometimes we think happiness is dependent on more stuff or circumstances to change. So we spend a lot of time waiting for happiness to happen to us. The truth of the matter is if you want to be happy more, 
be happy easier. Gratitude does not come to you. It comes from you. The revelation is that you have an unlimited resource of gratitude deep inside of you. When was the last time a simple moment stopped your world with soul-satisfying gratitude? Faye doesn't have much, but she shares joyfully with the neighbor's boys. Maybe that's what the scripture means when it says, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Our vision for Hope Village is to find people who may not have a home, or even a mom or a dad, but are rich in gratitude and resilience, and connect them with you. why it's so easy to pour our lives into this? The truth is, when you empty yourself into God's will, you end up full. Full of joy unspeakable and full of glory. We want to share our dream with you. Dream with us. Can we stand? And so the fathers, they made these toys with their kids. I don't know what this is worth to you, but I'm going to leave one for you. I asked God, why did you heal me that way? Why was it two stages? Why was it in the altar that day, the feeling, and then the tumors were still there? I went to the hospital, the doctor clinic, and the same sensation, the tumors were gone. You know what he told me? He said, the first miracle was I healed you. But the second miracle, I healed your body. Amen. Our bodies are not us. Our bodies wear out, but we never will. We're eternal. We're eternal. We're going to live somewhere forever. And I tell you, the thing that really helped me was when he touched my mind. Somebody here, you might have seen some things in your life and your faith has been affected as a result. I, I think it's good that we just pray for ourselves to say, God, heal my faith. Heal my faith. Can we do that right now? Can we do that right now? Lord, heal my faith. God, I live in this natural world. I'm bombarded with natural science and laws and the things I see, observations. I pray prayers. Some are answered. Some aren't. God, I need you to heal my faith. I know that you're the God that made all things. I know you're the God that can do anything. God, that's, that's what I want in my spirit at the end of the day is, God, yes, you can. You are able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. Thank you for joining us today. If you want more information, connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca. God bless you.